New Year. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Marvin Kaye, an actor who's appeared in The Handmaid's Tale, The Strain, The Expanse, and Murdoch Mysteries, among dozens of other things. As a writer and producer, he created the charming dramedy Less Than Kind, and he's prepping a new web series, Hit On Me, with the actor and producer Elizabeth Whitmere. You can see him as the burly Russian in Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, and that's pretty cool. Marvin picked Breaker Morant, Bruce Beresford's 1980 adaptation of Kenneth Ross's stage play about three Australian soldiers on trial for war crimes and the officer appointed to defend them. One of the biggest hits to come out of the Aussie New Wave, it features terrific performances from Edward Woodward, Jack Thompson, and Brian Brown, among others, as well as an unnervingly blunt approach to the subjects of morality, trauma, and violence. We're going to get into spoiler territory, but that's inevitable with a picture like this. We do get into spoiler territory, but that's sort of inevitable when discussing a picture like this. The picture itself has a certain inevitability when you think about it. This is someone else's movie. It's one of those movies that I, whenever it came on, I think it must have come on with Saturday Night at the Movies a few times and I always watched it. And there's, I think that, I think there's some brilliant acting. There's these noble characters in, in war and it's, it's so horrible and it's, it felt so good to watch these heroes who die at the end um i it, it the performances the direction the rawness of it i just always loved the movie and it was just one of these movies i kept watching and when i when i was dating my wife i actually introduced her to it and i think it was a saturday night at the movies because we used to that was our cheap date <laughs> cheap, cheap date night we'd, we'd, we'd go we'd watch that and it, whenever it came on i was like you have to watch this movie I, and, the, and it was just there was something so compelling about the story all of the performances that I I always fell in love with the with the movie every t- again every time I saw it. Okay, and what was your first experience of it? How old were you? When did you see it? Well, I mean, it came out in nineteen eighty, so yeah. I would have been uh, like, I probably did not see it in the theaters then. I would have been well, I was like 12. twelve. Yeah, um, so I doubt I, I would have gotten it then. I I would think that it must have been like uh you know seeing it on the tv or something after that but i rem- but i do remember saturday night at the movies and i saw it before that but i can't i can't recall when mm. but it probably was one of those broadcasts where it was you know it was they broken up with commercials and stuff like that in those days yeah. but it was i just found it to be a very compelling uh show like all the performances the the locations just that whole war at the turn of the century thing and and you know when you get, when I got older and there was more of a context, a conscious context to the horrors of war and what men have to do in war, and uh, then I appreciated that side of the story. But I've and I've always sort of uh, I've always been pulled towards those sort of stories. Um, the, you know the, the, how nobility is lost and humanity is lost in a war because, and the Boer War was was pretty brutal. Yeah. And, and and their depiction of it was not bad. I mean, it's 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 actually it's not as grotesque. They actually avoid a lot of the gro- gro- gross war. It's like not a Mel Gibson sort of yeah. show show the leg spouting blood sort of movie. But the performances and and the results of that horror and how they change those men is very dramatic in the show. Yeah, it surprised me watching it again. I hadn't seen it in about probably ten years. Um, 
the first time I saw it was the Laserdisc. <laughs> I had this memory clearly of the film playing forever right. in Toronto because it just it just did. It, uh, there, did were, it? Oh, you know, did. there were three foreign language or foreign imports that played for uh, two or three years in the in the late seventies and early eighties. It was Macaja Fall, Breaker Morant, and then later The Gods Must Be Crazy. And they just played and played and played. And so Breaker Morant was at the I think it was at the Eaton Center forever. I walked past the poster all the time. I just never went in. And when the Laserdisc came out in 86 or 87, there was this label that had a... They got Breaker Morant and the Light Horseman, and there was a third one, but this just this wave of Australian cinema that they clearly licensed right. suddenly showed up. Now, was that, was that sort of like... Was he riding the wave of Australian cinema at that time? So it's 1980. Yeah, so it's after The Last Wave and Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yeah, okay. And, and all of that stuff. Cars That Ate Paris. But yeah, I think it was, it was in full swing uh, that Beresford's uh, first international breakthrough just sort of emerged that right. way and it was a play beforehand it as was well. yeah and that I, I didn't I didn't know that till way later uh, into it that I was like oh and you can see the elements of the play in it when you when you when you rewatch it now because yeah. the way they uh, oh, the courtroom scenes I mean that's all very theatrical like they did there wasn't when you watch it there wasn't a lot of like war scenes there weren't a lot of like explosions uh, like i said earlier but you the, the tension in the courtroom and all of the machinations and the strategies that were being used it was such a great character driven film um yeah uh, you, i i once i knew it once i found out it was a play it was easy to see the play within the screenplay yeah well that really stood out on this viewing that in the, the there's a sort of it's not flatness exactly but it's a dispassionate approach cinematically yeah um the battle sequences, the flashbacks that we see are all very conventionally shot. Yes. And the, yeah, and the, and the trial itself of the court-martial, there are shots above, there are shots to the side, there are strange canted, not a yeah. canted angle exactly, but sort of a canted stage approach to it. Mm -hmm. And an absolute lack of music, which I didn't remember. There, I did. There's some singing. And yes. There's musical, uh, there's a musical number, at the musical number, there's a piece of score at the very, very end. But otherwise, it's, there's nothing. Yeah, it's very quiet that way. Yeah, and but you're sort it's of left with it. Yeah, and, and but it also it, I think that and it's part of the characters too. It emphasizes like the, the how eloquently he spoke in in the courtroom. Um, uh, break, the Morant character, mm -hmm. like when 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 they accuse him and when they say, you know, did you when you executed those prisoners, did you have a courtroom, a courtroom like this? And he stands and he does that speech, yeah. which is so intense, but it's, and it's so theatrical. And, you know, a lot of times when, when movies go all talky talky, like uh, when they use, when the play thing happens and, and they start and, and it's, it's, they use a lot of dialogue. Uh, you get, you can really sense the play of the screenplay, but I didn't, I never got that sense in here. It just, it felt right for the way they were doing the characters and the way, the way it was shot, that it didn't, it didn't stand out that much to me. Like when I saw, uh, when I saw Denzel Washington's Fences, like right. that, he's like, oh man, you didn't change a word of, or it looked, I, I, I don't know, I could be talking on my ass, but it didn't look like he changed a word of the play because it's just like it is, it sounds like a play. It's shot very much like in the, very simple, just like boom, 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 and everybody's this reams of reams of dialogue mm -hmm. and it's not that there's any bad but you go oh that's a play yeah well it's so respectful of the source that yeah. it refuses to turn it into cinema yeah and with Breaker Morant and there are a handful of films uh, Beresford does again with Driving Miss Daisy like he finds a way to activate the text to, to yeah. get it outside of people standing well, still well and I think it's yeah and I think it's 
using using the camera and using using it adapting it for the medium so that it's it doesn't feel kind of like an alien like it's been shoved into a a, a frame right. whereas I, I that was my 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 issue with fences I anything mean, I thought like beautiful performances but like I was like uh, it's it feels like a play it felt mm-hmm. like a play it was like I I would love to see them do this on a live stage but for the cinema I wish he would have twisted it a bit now the, and the show, you know the movie got praised uh, at the yang and, and it should for, for just for for all the performances and stuff, but it will it felt like a play to me. That was yeah. my only criticism it's, of it. It's fine. It's a record of a stuff, yeah. of a show. Uh, I felt that way. Actually, no, I felt the other way. I'm thinking of the uh, going in the opposite direction with something like August Osage County, where they just go so hard into this is a movie now, and yeah. it just won't stop bothering you with <laughs> how cinematic it is yes. and how beautiful this shot is and how the lighting is twinkling here and how these actors are all in the same space. Uh, but yeah, with Breaker Morant, if you didn't know, it would still play. Yeah. And you wouldn't worry about it. Plus, no. if, you, if you think about it as a stage play, then all the flashback sequences, all the military stuff makes no sense. How do you even begin to, to hint at that? So why would you think of this as a play Play. based on the structure? Yeah, until and again, I didn't find I didn't find out till after I'd seen it like three times Mm -hmm. that oh, it was a play first that he and he adapted it. But I, it's it's I love the nobility of the characters. I love all all the performances are great. The the pompous British uh, officials in it are so great. All those those character actors that they got for the for the jury. Um, the head guy, I can't remember. I don't know his oh, name. Oh, the tribunal. Yes. The tribunal and with his mustache. They're so perfect. I Those performances are so great. And uh, Woodward, Woodward himself is so wonderful. Jack Thompson, God. Yeah, a All young Jack Thompson who has somehow never been young. Yeah, well, it's funny because I remember seeing that. And what was the, what was the television show he had? He didn't he or no? Not not a TV show. He it was adapted to a TV show. Oh, um, Man from Snowy River. Man from Snowy River. No, no, no. And the there other was Australian film that never went away. No, the uh, no, but it was um, St- Stuntman. Wasn't no, it? no, no. God, what the hell was it? What the hell series was it? F- it was something FX. Or? Oh, that's Brian Brown. Brian Brown. Yeah, yeah. Brian Brown. Sorry, that's uh, okay. Brian Brown. The, the, yeah, I, that was I, I. got the names blurred in my no, face. No, no, that's where okay. I remembered him from. I remember when I saw the movie, I was like, "Oh, that's the guy from that series." Yeah. But uh, oh yeah, I mean, but you're 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 right. Um, who? Sorry, Jack Thompson. Jack Thompson. The, 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 the oh yeah, the lawyer guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's and he's he was great in that. Uh, they're all so good. Uh, I am so riveted, riveted by those sort of character performances, um, and it's 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 really interesting and very compelling to watch those sort of actors show their moves like that on, on cinema. And uh, it, it's really a tribute to how, some really great writing and some really great acting to to be able to do that with not a lot of flashy, crazy, uh, crazy camera moves or special effects. Though so, I mean, yeah, I mean even the just the the nature of the the material means it's going to be very contained and coiled. And yeah. I think the first time that Woodward barks that someone's lying is genuinely shocking. Yeah. And he, and he, he, yeah. yeah. He just active, he just springs up. Yeah. And it's, uh, the, 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 the tone, the speech and the, and the way he, uh, he's so poised in, in, in his character. It's, it, uh, there's the scene where they're, uh, they're shaving mm-hmm. at the sink and, and, uh, it's so, it, it, it's such a great acting study, and you know my days as an actor. Where you can see, like as he's shaving, uh, he's shaving, he's polishing his stuff as he's finishing it and putting it yeah. down in order. And you see, um, 
Brian Brown. Brian Brown. He's he's sort of the laissez-faire rock star kind of soldier, and he just like he even as he walks into the courtroom, he's kind of got that like just slouchy sort of uh, appeal to him, and he's just you just see like they really these characters are so iconic, and it was I I think it's such a great they're all such great actors, and they just he, they they were very precise in what they were doing on that movie, mm-hmm. and it also nicely delineates the space between the English career soldier and the Australian yeah. sort of maybe not a conscript but a recruit Somebody yeah, well, he's an officer but he's not terribly high placed which uh, uh, Brian Brown's character Brian Brown's, yeah but he, he also says um, some point in the movie he says he volunteered because uh, there was no work at home oh that's right yes. there was no work at home and the war was happening so he thought he could make some money yeah. uh, doing this for his family that's right, $300 for something yeah and something like that so you know and so he goes there and he, he's, he's screwing around on his wife and all that stuff and he's, he's a playboy he's a hustler and you just see it and he's, he's the one who calls out I think the first uh, witness who uh, in the movie the first witness who who's lies he's the first one who's, who calls him out and says you know and, and, and tell, basically tells him off right in the stand and he's just such a charming character like good looking Good looking, doesn't give a shit. He's gonna say it, tell it like it is, guy. Yeah. And then you've got the poet sitting next to him, which is uh, Woodward's Woodward's character, and then the little innocent, which is who's the actor? I can't oh, remember. Um, he's got an odd hyphenated name that I've seen him in dozens uh, of things. Is Lewis it? Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. Fit, yeah, and they hyphenate Fitz and Gerald. It is. Yeah, and That's, that is correct. That is how it's always been spelled, and that it always stands did out. Did he do? Me. I don't. I never looked him up. Did he do he's much? He's doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, you've seen him. He's he's also one of those journeyman actors who's yeah, always sort of in. He's in, in every Indiana. Australian thing. Oh, okay. Uh, drama after drama after drama and, and he plays like the wide-eyed innocent like how how is this happening why would they come after us sort of mm-hmm. sort of thing and, and like oh, it's, it's it's just well it's just very classically constructed it's yeah. so uh, it it the movie charms me every time and even the final line of the movie what what does he say like you know shoot shoot well no, you bastards don't screw bastard, this yeah. up don't yeah, screw which this is up apparently true uh, but it's what the guy said uh, which is just, which is just well, you get it then. Like you can't write something that good. Like you have to have somebody say that. It's so it's so heroic and sad. Yeah, well, I guess I. And it's not delivered as a big hero moment either. It's just no. barked out. And they're not big heroes. <laughs> I I was reading something about it before I came here. Like that the Beresford was kind of is kind of freaked out a bit that the movie was taken as um, how horrible the Brits were to the Australians they then the, the and the, the movie was treated as sort of a vindication of these Australian soldiers when he really wanted it to be a movie about what the horrors of war what what, what war makes men do right because uh, what they did was terrible he never and even in the movie he, he doesn't say uh, he they say like they admit to all of the horrible things like shooting prisoners and all of that as just that's what war is and you 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 put us in war and this is what you're going to get right. and it's you know condemning war and it, but it does you can't help but feel something for these three these soldiers who do get shit on by the system yeah and um it's they end up being these noble heroes that die in the end yeah in a weird way it's i mean not in a weird way it's the standard ending for most war movies, movies yeah. i'm thinking of you know, uh, not only Paths of Glory, which is sort of the obvious analog, but even A Few Good Men ends the same way with the, you know, we fail to protect and that's why we're guilty. Yeah. 
uh, the idea that it's a little bit more blunt in its delivery. Well, that, but yeah, Sorkin gets Sorkin, Sorkin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but with with Breaker Morant and Paths of Glory lining up together in my mind in a way that almost makes the specifics of the war unnecessary. I mean, really, this could have been any military conflict. That's, that's yeah. the other thing too. The setting makes it precise and specific, yeah. and the, and then nature of the people involved but it does definitely feel like an indictment of the colonial attitude and, and everything that was going on militarily yeah. for a century and that doesn't make it any better yeah just the idea that this is always going to happen to people that there will always be sacrificial lambs and and the officers will be or the officers above will simply be allowed to feel bad about this necessary yeah. evil and you know and they'll and yeah and and they can blame they can blame the doing of the evil on the people who carry out their orders. Right. It's always a bad apple. It's not, yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, no, it's very interesting. It's funny when you said location. It's like, w- w- is has there been any other movie about the Boer Wars? Not that I can think of. I, there are films in which people return from them. Right? Yeah. It's their, that's but their it's distinction. Ne- there's never anything where it's like, because it's such a, it was such a, I remember when I watched it, it was such a weird war. Like, you have to look it, look it up. Like, the what wars? Yeah. Between, like, the Dutch <laughs> and the British. And the British? In Pretoria. What? Yeah. In Pretoria? What the hell was that? Why? I guess, well, gold, oil, yeah. jewels. Well, it's like the Spanish-American War. It's there, but nobody ever really goes into it. It's yeah. always used as backdrop. Yeah. But and this one, like, you were actually, they actually were there. It's very, it's, it's, I think there's something about that, li- and it has that indie film 70s feel to it still, even though it's in the 80s. It's still, when I watched it, I was thinking about, like, all those 70s movies that you, that, that era of, that felt sort of gritty, right, and and, and real, and yeah. So th- that movie—that's why—that's one another reason I think it, that movie charms me. Yeah, it's such an unlikely art house hit. Too. Is it? Well, Is it, it a, feels like it now because when you when you look back through uh, the prism of well, thirty-eight yeah. years ago, there was this big wave of, of cinema that no one had ever seen before, and this one feels like a curiosity more than. I mean, you look at La Caja Fall, and as retrograde as it is, you can see why it was a hit. Yeah. And uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, and those were films that, that were evocative and strange. You could point to them and say, oh, this is a different kind of cinema. Breaker Moran is incredibly conventional for the most part. Like, it pitches normally. It sounds like a regular movie. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've always been surprised every time, because I came to it just long enough after the fact, after its premiere, that this was a thing that kept playing for a year. This got people in the room. It's a courtroom drama. Why what's so special about it but then I I think the exoticism of all of those pieces yeah that you have and English actors and, and Australian Sorry, actors man. and you have this location that isn't quite immediately it almost is surrealized or stylized in a way that would seem exotic to yeah people. I think that's a that's a really good way to put it because I, I, I when I rewatched it recently you know it it is it doesn't feel like any other movie. Like it, it's got like some elements of a western kind of feel, yeah, yeah. but it's not. And then it has like that's has that 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 British war feel, but it's not. And it's it's this strange little amalgam of of everything, and done in a very very simple, understated way in, in a lot of it, uh, of a lot of the way it was shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. It is just a courtroom drama, essentially. Like most of most of the most of the intense scenes are there, but something about it picks at you, and you just yeah. can't dismiss it. And uh, I I go back. I think you know those. I think their performances and and there when when a, when a play is adapted. We were talking about adaptations before. When a play is adapted well, when when something 
it just has the privilege of being rehearsed and gone over a thousand times. You can you can see the precision in the words mm. and in the craftsmanship of it. And I know it gets all ripped apart in editing and and uh, when they do it as a screenplay, they readapt it. But there's they have the, the themes and the the con- the construction of of what that person was trying to say, what the writer was trying to say, has been worked on and worked on and worked on for years and years. And you you get a sense when something really good has been adapted, like you go uh like the characters are all no they know what they want they all have goals like it's all those basic things right. all the bases are covered everybody there's been a lot of work and everything is all the bows are tied the way they should be right and of course you can't get any more urgent than i don't want to die yeah uh and the only other opposition is characters who don't want to lose a case which is almost as important because they're fighting for, for these people's lives, and then there are characters who are trying to suppress the truth, which again, pretty urgent, can't really. Yeah. you know. Like everybody had their goals are so specific, and I think that that really helps when you're watching these kind of movies. Is like, you know what everybody wants, and you know the obstacles in their path, and it's just it's and that's 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 good writing and good good direction and good construction, and then you know you you get a good ensemble of actors, which I I, I still stress that these are all really great ensemble actors like the character actors all the little actors in it are great yeah um again those the the british tribunal guys are so there's you just hate them so much they're such assholes they're such arrogant pricks you go that it's you you really i think that's what makes you cheer for the australians and makes you feel like uh they need to the vindication it's the total vindication of these guys because the other guys are such dicks yeah that you want the the, you want these guys to be heroes they're really not heroes they were fucking they they committed war crimes yeah they in even in modern day they would have been tried yeah tried and convicted but yet somehow this play makes them seem heroic yeah and with hindsight too the difference culturally now how we interpret military stories and how we're automatically on side with the enlisted men i mean that's cinema right that yeah. you're always it's an underdog story yeah but there's something about this film that that made me understand maybe in a way that other maybe this is it maybe other war films at the time weren't really exploring it gallipoli certainly doesn't have any no. of that it's about dying with honor but dying yeah this is a film about people who are suffering from the acts that they've committed. Yes. Which wasn't really a thing in 1980. I mean, you, you kind of got it with Coming Home, but again, in a completely different context. Yeah. Here you have a film about brutalization and people who have lost themselves and who are still hurting and suffering over it. Like Woodward, and, and especially Woodward, he's just so rigid uh, in a way that kind of speaks to career soldier but also kind of speaks to a man who's barely holding it together yeah. after everything he's seen well it's also done. like in the I think it's an earlier in the movie they, they say you know he's a poet he's a writer mm-hmm. and, and then he's they, there's the scene where he's like singing opera at one yes. point and they, so they made and him like this total ro- voice yeah which yes is, he was a singer uh, yeah. the, the actor it's and, really jarring too because at least in the current sound mix on the Blu-ray it sounds like he's dubbed so it may have simply been saying the playback no I'm sure but it's, it's him it's definitely him. Yeah. Yeah. and uh, and but you, you you put that beside the fact that these guys were War, like they committed war crimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very and yeah, yeah. I guess in 1980, it would be very difficult to find movies that dealt with that sort of damaged heroes. Yeah, um, I mean, you had anti heroes, but you yeah. didn't have that sort of thing. I mean, I guess the Deer Hunter and Coming Home together 
but yeah, there are different explorations, and the, the war in Vietnam is perceived to have been the great, you know, destruction of the American military. Like soldiers didn't mm-hmm. come back the same. Same, yeah. And, and they weren't fighting for the, the same things. Yeah, and with what we see of the Boer War in, in Breca Morant, it was ugly but clean. They like, fought with honor in a way that maybe Vietnam wasn't, but who knows? I mean, it's clearly a guerrilla tactic situation by the time we get there. Well, yeah, because yeah, and they talk about it. Like, mm-hmm. this was a war fought. And it's, it was interesting. There, there was a section of dialogue where they talk about, like, this is a war fought like no other war. And it's interesting when you think about what's happening now and what happened in Vietnam and all that, mm-hmm. like how universal that is, like that, 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 that is used as an excuse to justify these horrific tactics. And uh, yeah, there actually is a speech. Be. The lawyer has a speech that men, you know, if you throw men into these horrible situations, don't expect them not to re to fight horribly. You can't expect civilized men to act civilized in the most uncivilized place. Right. And w- when their lives are depending on it. And then, I think that speaks to I think really good writing where they've just he's stating like a universal theme here that that will that echoes for not just the eighties the nineties and now I mean yeah. you're seeing you see the same thing so that I think that's another reason I love it you know I love stories those sort of uh, stories with guerrilla fighters and all that kind of stuff I've always been a fan of it maybe it's because my father was kind of into that or was a guerrilla fighter actually so where when. Uh, we're gonna go to my dad's story. What's the context? Here? My dad was uh, in Poland when uh, when when Hitler invaded, and he okay. was in a small town just outside of uh, Warsaw, like a hundred kilometers north. So the tanks roll in, and he uh, was in a school. He's in school. Basically, the teacher said, "You know, everybody go home." And he, some kids went home. Some kids ran into the forest to hide, and he ran into the forest to hide, and then met up with the Russian underground, and they basically said, "Come with us, or you're gonna die out here." And then he spent most of World War Two. Like running through the forest as a child soldier, and I, I, and I was thinking about that when I was coming here. Like, the, like, what is it about those movies? And it's like there. I mean, if there's like a good, you know, therapy session in there for me, it, there is that underlying theme. Like, I that, that you know, I have a connection to guerrilla soldiers through through my father. Yeah, because he fought that, and he was, you know, he survived that, and it, I saw uh, what kind of a person, you know, and he came out of that. However damaged he was, whatever damage he had, he still held himself together fairly nobly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he had a very interesting story no that kidding. way. Did he, uh, did he talk about it? You know, I inter- it's funny, the year before he died, the summer before he died, I, uh, I was going to theater school at the time. And I, I, I had this urge, because I knew he was sick, and so I, I, I interviewed him. And I got him to talk about it the most he ever did. Um, and he has some horrific stories about... You know, hiding in the bushes when the Germans are bayoneting the thing, and he got sliced across the knuckles, and he had a scar on his hand. And like the guy, uh, one of the soldiers beside him, like grabbed his face so he couldn't scream. And so, and they all hid there, and they waited till the soldiers passed. And you know, so he and he had those stories. And you're getting shot in the ankle, and then having the Russian soldier like punch him out unconscious so that they would they could operate and, and fix. And then he says, "I don't remember anything." And he just punched me. And I woke up in a stretcher being dragged through the forest. And you, know, like, like, you know, and, you know, you look at your dad telling you these stories going, are you just reciting, like, a movie script to me? Yeah. You can't um, see can, these things happening to ordinary people. Yeah. And it, there is, like, when you've met somebody and when you've been raised by somebody who's lived through that, I think 
when I, when I must have a subconscious connection every time I see these scenes to all of those stories that he told mm-hmm. of surviving that. And he, but he didn't speak a lot about it. Uh, he, I don't think he, he never went into any gruesome details. I think the most, uh, the most harrowing detail story was like he, the, like there was his job, and a whole bunch of kids would go and raid farmhouses and things like that, like steal food. Basically, right. just disrupt, disrupt the the, the German uh, any sort of any, any sort of supply line and, and raid for food. And he said that the German they had raided a, a farmhouse, and then the German soldiers had come and were looking to see that, and they they had hidden. And a whole bunch of German soldiers went into the uh, the storm cellar, and uh, he said, you know, we had some grenades, so we just opened the door, threw it down, put a board in, and we walk away. And that was, and he never talked about anything else. And I said, and, and what happens next? He goes, we walk away. Uh, and you just you look at your dad and you go, okay. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's, and that's as much as, that's, that's as far as you get from it. And so, you know, it just brings it home that like those scenes, as dramatic as they sound when you, when you speak them, you can see, you know, there's, there's cinematic and eventually one day I will write it. <laughs> but um, they happen and sure. that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. And they're still happening. And it's more horrible that they're still happening and we have an awareness of it. So, you know, Breaker Morant maybe, you know, was based on something that happened in the 18... What? 1900... Yeah, the trial was set in 1901. 1901. So. Uh, and I don't think the tactics that they talk about and all of the horrors that they talk about have changed very much um, in over 100 years. Yeah. There's been no need. It always works. That's yeah. the worst part, right? And just I mean, basic resistance is basic resistance, just guerrilla fighting. It's killing people as horribly as possible yeah. in a small and, space. And uh, you know, blaming people. I mean, we, you, you mentioned a few good men. I mean, you see, like those themes resonate even now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I think that's why the, these war movies. It's like this. It's like we want to punish ourselves. We want to watch these movies that remind us war is shitty. Why the fuck are we still doing this? Yeah. Well, it's the, and that's the other problem with war movies, right? Because it was Kubrick who said any movie about war, or no, it was Truffaut, one of them, either Kubrick or Truffaut. You're so much more educated in film than I am. <laughs> if I could remember who said it, yes. Uh, but the line is, you, it's impossible to make an anti-war film because all film glorifies what it shows. Yeah. And there will be people who come out of Full Metal Jacket thinking that was fucking awesome, you know, that sort of thing. And Breaker Morant's approach is to simply show people falling over. Yeah. Like it's it's almost it's almost elegant in the depiction of violence. The way the the people delivering the coup de grace are. Yeah. way in the background and we get to watch the echoes of the shot hit people and, and uh, even when when characters are gunned down at the very end it's the cut back to the kid yes. registering well, that, yeah. that noise and and that speaks more than watching the bodies fall over and then the, you know the, I, I do say I, it makes me laugh every time because just before they go out to be executed mm-hmm. um, it's alright the actor um, Brian, Brown. Brian Brown character because he, he can they can hear the carpenters making the coffin right. on the other side of the wall and he goes the least they could do is you think you figured they could at the least they could do is measure us for it to make sure it, and uh woodward woodward characters guess breakers break Morant's character says well i don't think they've ever gotten any complaints which is a, a very funny line mm-hmm. and then when they're shot at the end and they're putting the bodies in <laughs> his characters yeah. doesn't fit and they have to like shove the legs in and you and it's it's all happening right at the end, just before the credits are about to roll on it, and it's 
I have to say, it was like, it's a great joke yeah. to throw in. And it's such a dark joke to throw in right at the end. It's like, it's... Yeah, somebody thought about it. Somebody, somebody thought, saw that. Somebody saw it. Somebody thought that that was going to be... Because it's very... Like, he's, you know, you see, the, see him put the body in the coffin and they have to force the yeah. legs in. It's... And you're like, oh, that's... It's, it's, just, I don't, it's just like one of those moments that stand out to me. Like, oh, that's, yeah. that's sharply, sharply shot and shot. You know, this, there, that there's a humor and that this nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Like it's just war and death and horror and it's just they're just it's just a part of the sausage factory. And you, know, you just put them in the box and they get rid of them. And there's something dark and funny about the acknowledgement of it. I guess. Yeah, it's a profoundly unsentimental film about yes. war profoundly unsentimental and you're wow. just you gotta be a writer that's what I mean but you're just you're just stuck with it right yeah. you're in the space with these people as they not only as they realize their defenses boiling away but but as they sort of pick up the gallows humor at the same time yeah. that nobody nobody loses their minds and the one person who probably would gets a life sentence instead of death, yeah. so that loosens the tensions a little bit. But then you just you're that the, the hope of reprieve is taken away, and uh, and both Brown and Woodward just sort of roll into it with the with the stiff upper lip thing, and they're they're angry, but they're channeling it into the cynicism. Yes, that, yeah, and there is it's it is like almost distilled cynicism that they mm. have because I think they 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 even start the whole courtroom situation they start it with this like we know we're we're getting set up here like we know this is it and but they, they but they 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 hold on to the hope and they struggle to try and and maybe 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 we'll we'll beat this but when it when it all starts to fall apart they know yeah. and i think there's a point where breaker Miranda actually says you know d- to the lawyer don't there's oh, no yeah, point right. there's no point this is just this is all a show we're they're they're going to blame us for this and that's it we're done Mm-hmm. And they accept it. And he, I mean, I don't, I don't know how accurate a depiction is it, of, of it is. Like, there's a, when the other guy who's going to be tried after them says, you know, there's some people who want to break you out. They, they said, we can get you on a horse and maybe no, that's right. you'll get out and go, go into Portuguese territory or something like that. He says, yeah. you, you can, we can maybe, and he goes, well, where will I go? Portuguese territory, go see the world. And he goes, I've seen it. Yeah. And that's the ultimate cynic line, right? Yeah. You can go, you can escape, go see the world. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, and, and this on this viewing, it felt to me like he was saying he's been, he's only experienced it through war, yeah. and he's seen how awful it is, yeah. and that he has no interest in seeing. Oh, what's the line? It's from, it's it's uh, it's Shakespearean. I think it's no. Is it the Byron poem? Thing? No, I, it's not in the film. It's a line that I think of. It's a line at the end of of Withnal and I. Uh, Man delights not me nor woman neither. He's just yeah. exhausted, and there's no uh, yeah, left. and you get that sense of it. Like I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. That he just he accepts it because this is as good as it gets. It's horribly cynical. Oh my god, it yeah. makes me sad to talk about yeah, it. Yeah. It's horribly cynical. Like this is as good as it gets. Like why 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 am I going to go into Portuguese territory and live out my life as like a, a man on the run? Just mm-hmm. let let it be done. Just let it be done. Versus freedom. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think there's you know I don't I don't know you know getting getting shot by a firing squad at dawn. I don't. They do it as nobly as possible, but I know. You know, nobody dies. There's no honor in yeah. getting shot, uh, sh- you know, shot with a shot in a firing line. It's just ugly and brutal, and you're dead. Yeah. Um, and again, the film doesn't shy away from that either. No. I mean, there is that slow mo violence thing that was popular at the time, but only in one shot, yeah. and it's not heroic at all. No. It's awful. 
you're you're meant to feel the impact of the bullets. It's not, it's the peck and paw thing, but without glory. Yeah, not there's dying. no they're glory. They're dying to for it. nothing. Yeah, they're dying. Yeah, because somebody said, well, in the movie, basically, and they do say, well, these men, these men will sacrifice, and then after they die. Uh, they say, oh, you know, the armistice is, uh, they're, they're negotiating, they're negotiating an armistice, so yeah. this will all work out. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. We're showing. <laughs> well, we're all supposed to feel good about that? Yeah, it's a show of good faith that we killed the bad apples that didn't actually, you know, have a say in whatever was happening. happening. That just, we're just following orders. Oh, that's heartbreaking. It's, it really is. And it's, it's so, it's so simple and, and it's elegant in that. In that there is really maybe that's what it was the the downer ending that still feels like a victory somehow morally. Well, yeah, and I, there's no preciousness about it. Like I love those endings. I, you know, and I'm a sucker for a downer ending, which mm. is uh, maybe maybe my downfall as, as a person too. I was but say you work in comedy. Well, you know, my, sh- my the show I worked on my show was I I never saw it strictly as a comedy, especially you know in the last the last few seasons we were dealing with a whole bunch of stuff and actually when we pitched it it was uh, it was an hour long sort of just dark oh really show originally yeah we were like we, we thought it would be like this crazy driving school family six feet under is what we were sort of modeling ourselves after and the network came to us because they said they were a little interested and they were like could you do it as a half hour and it was the first show we ever pitched so I was like when the network says can you do it as a half hour sure, you go yeah. yeah yeah of course we could do it as a half hour we'll do, we'll do it as a half hour standing on our heads what do you want and so we did it and uh, you know, I we work in comedy, but if you've ever been around comedians, they're the darkest, cynic, most cynical people in the whole fucking world. Yes. And there, you 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 sit with a bunch of comedians in a room uh, after after a comedy night when they're starting to drink, and you will see like <laughs> you light is sucked out of the room. <laughs> like there is such such a pit of darkness in there, and you have to be able to laugh at it. And I think there's a gift to being able to take the darkest parts of life and laugh at it. And that's why that moment with, with the coffin, when yeah, they're yeah. sticking his leg, when they're shoving his legs down, that maybe that's the part of me that, that loves it. Maybe it's the, the comedian, the comedy writer in me that just says, Oh, like that's a funny line. That's a funny bit. Right. Like they just, even at the end, they're just giving a little joke going, look, yeah, <clears throat> I got to get that thing in there. Yeah. So, but yeah, but, but my show, we, it was funny, but we never, we we didn't aim directly at the funny. We try. We were trying to do something. I don't. Know, I don't want to talk like too nobly about it, but I think I think we tried to do something special. Yeah. Well, I mean, the it. comedy came out of the characters. It's yeah. not like it was a sitcom that was designed to put people in funny situations. But I mean, I I laughed. Oh no, no, and we wanted people it was to a laugh. Good feeling. Yeah, and it was based. You know, it was based on me growing up and Winnipeg and all of that, and we we wanted it to be something. Uh, but we we did. There were points where we would actually talk, have conversations about balancing out the drama and the comedy. And like, it's a funny line, but it doesn't feel like it might be. Oh, yeah. Whereas some shows, I think, would say, you know, we got to get the stick that laugh in. We we would sometimes shave the laugh off and go, you know, um, we're gonna have a downer ending. Like we're, you know, we're yeah. we're just gonna do it, and because that's what felt right, so. Well, if that's what the material wants, right? Yeah, I mean, that's then, that's it. Once you but, try to, but we were, you know, we were in a, a very privileged situation when we, especially when we made the jump to HBO, that we were like, they let, they don't care. They were like, do whatever you want, and you don't have to have the commercial, the the act break, the funny out right. at the act break to bring them back in. So we were in a very privileged situation to be able to just let our stories meander and, and turn into whatever they wanted, mm, and sure. and you know, it was a it was a very it was I I had a very blessed experience for my first show. That was like a really. 
incredible. Even McKinney and all those guys would look at us and go, guys, you don't know how lucky you are. <laughs> Uh, and it wasn't until like, the show was over and I'd worked on a few other things where I'd like, oh man, I was lucky. Like we got to do, we got to, we got to do whatever we wanted. And if we, if we felt like being funny one day, we could be funny. If we felt like we wanted to have some drama, we were able to do that. And there was nobody was questioning us because yeah. of who we were, who who was working on it, and where we were doing it. That does not happen. No, no, no. And like, we would get notes from the network that were like, you know two lines they would have like an issue with one one or two things it was rare to get like detailed notes and then you work on when you work on another show you get like these reams of notes and you're like oh geez yeah i've heard stories yeah no and you, you we were really we got to do whatever we wanted and i don't know if that was because of you know mckinney was on board and all these other people were contributing to this show and they they just trusted it um and mckinney was sort of brilliant in, in dealing with the the network and the notes as well but yeah it's uh it was a real privilege i'm sorry i didn't want to end up talking about my show no it's it always happens it's fine it's, yeah. it's sort of the best part of the you know when things organically flow into the work that's that's but what yeah. fascinates me but yeah so yeah but in terms of it being like i never stressed uh that i was like a strictly a comedy guy but like when you when you sell something to the network it's just much it's much easier for people to categorize you right so suddenly like oh you're a half hour you're a half hour guy and that just happens right um no, but hit on me is funny yeah, it is. It's dark, and I want. I, I did that. Uh, I did that web series thing, you know. And it's we, we're still waiting to hear about funding for it. Mm-hmm. But I did it because I wanted to do something like that was really dark that nobody, that you just don't see on TV, or at least on Canadian TV. Right. You know, you don't see anything like that dark. Um, and that's funny. But I just finished writing my first one hour. Oh. Um, I just handed it into my agent uh, a week ago, saying, you know, uh, it's a, it's a murder mystery. It's it's weird. I don't. It's it's a it's set in a, like a mythical Hasidic village, like outside of uh, Whitby. Okay. And uh, a body, uh, the body of a, a Hasidic Jew turns up in a dumpster, like just in just outside the town of Brooklyn, with an eye. Okay. That's just a, that is a town outside of Whitby, and then an investigation ensues that sort of does that. Cool. And so I wrote I wrote that, and my agent's going to pass that around, and we'll see about what the one hour world uh, how they how they take that. It's called, and I called it Brooklyn with an eye. I, when you said it, I was going to ask because that is the perfect title. Brooklyn with an eye, Ontario, um, in really small letters. I mean, just have a, the road sign to yeah. indicate. Welcome to Brooklyn. Exactly where you are. So the um, have you ever? I'm. I just wanted to ask now that it's come up. Have you ever considered doing a military thing? Is it? Would you? Want I, to? I. You know, I've had a couple of producers when I talked about my father's story yeah, who've, yeah. who've really. Uh, emphasize it. I, I just started thinking about it recently, just because I guess I'm getting older, and I'm like, you know, I'm hitting the middle age, and I'm like, oh, if I'm going to do it, I better do it. I, I'm, and I think I think just because of what it is, I'm feeling very precious about it, and that's like the worst thing for a writer is to be mm. precious about it. So I'm working on it in in my way, which means it'll take a long time. But yeah, I want I want I want to eventually get that story out there because because the the scenes. And, and his story of when he came here and all that are all, it's all really interesting and there's a, there is some dramatic line in there I'm trying to find something a way to get into it that's and this is this is the curse right the way to get into it that's different that's right. interesting and then you curse yourself because you're trying to be so interesting and so different so eventually I'll I'll get uh, I'll get either drunk enough or tired enough or I'll I'll just fucking write something about it right um, but that's you know it's it's in, what's funny is less than kind was about me and my father when I wrote that but that was easier than just ta- than just doing my father's story sure because I feel and I feel very precious about it and that's what's killing 
killing it is every time I try, I approach it, I'm approaching it. Oh, that's not good enough. That's the, the writer dilemma. Right. So, you know, meanwhile, I'll work on other things. It's just sort of always put a note or, or write a scene or just throw that into a pile. And eventually I'll just throw it up on the table and say, okay, let's see if I can piece something together here. Cool. Cause it, but it's, it feels like it's, a, there's a, a, a very strong story there. Maybe even too epic for me to even define. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a narrative. I mean, there is a, there is a narrative there. The war itself gives it a structure. And yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then, you know, yeah, he, he lost his family and then he found his father at the end and they came to Canada and that was, and how old was he at the time? When, when when the war broke out? Yeah. Well, well when the, the tanks course. rolled in, he was like 12 or 13. Okay, so he goes, like, and there you and, go too, coming of age story. It's all yeah, and then, he'd like, but, and then it was all kind of over when he was like 17, 18. Mm-hmm. And uh, he went to, he, at that point, he was like a great smuggler. He was like, spoke seven languages, but it was all street language. Like he took, because he was, basically all he was doing was stealing and, and trading stuff. Yeah. And that's all he grew up knowing how to do. And he was in Italy, and there was an area, there was a market in Italy in, um, I think it was Rome. Uh, yeah. Was it Rome? I can't remember. I have to go back and look. And uh, there was a market where a lot of the Jews hung out. And he said at the end of the day, um, the market was closing down. And he, there was a guy staring at him in the market. And uh, he looked at him. And, it, and the guy, he looked back. And, it, and the guy just called out his name. He went, Aaron? And it was his father. And he hadn't seen his father in like four years. And his father had survived the war because his father was in the Polish army and was treated as a prisoner of war. He wasn't treated as a Jew. Okay. So he didn't get, he didn't get sent. But his mother and his two sisters were sent to the camp. And so he found his dad at the end. And when when my dad describes that scene, I'm like, holy shit, that's like, you know, this is like, those those are like epic, like, kind of scenes. Uh, And I've just, I've never written something in that and I'm I'm imposing, of course, this preciousness on it because of of you know it was told to me. So you know the, those sort of moments where I'm like, uh, there's a story here. I got to write this eventually mm-hmm. before I die. It'll be my last thing that I'll hit return on the on the keyboard and then okay. and I'll expire. <laughs> well, it's good to have a plan. Yeah, that's it. That's my plan. So I'll I'll, I'll write it right at the end. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, given the um, given the framework. Uh, not including that, is there anything of Breaker Morant that you've already incorporated or, or used or relied upon elsewhere in your work? Is it somewhere in your creative DNA? Well, I think I think that that cynicism. I mean, like you mentioned the web series I tried to do. There is like a, like that dark sort of uh, cynical attitude towards death and towards uh, authority mm-hmm. as well. Um, I think I've I've absorbed that. I love the nobility of characters who are doing horrible things yet they're still somehow noble there's something so interesting about that to me like from the tony soprano to like all of those characters who who you can cheer for yet they're really horrible people mm-hmm. like you shouldn't be cheering for that guy that those sort of heroes always turn my crank they always get me revved up so if i can absorb that that if I absorbed anything, it probably is that. Um, and I, I, I would, I would like to say that I, I would learn from the simplicity um, of the structure of it, the way it's laid out. Like it's so simple, and it's like this, this is simple goals of the characters and how clearly they're defined. Like that sort of, it's so clean in that way. Mm-hmm. That really, that's something to strive for for me as a writer to not make it over complex, to not impose 
so many layers that it's it, it's it's a layer cake that just becomes a mess. That you can right. you can make things simple and elegant, and I think that's what that this Breaker Morant does that very very well. Yeah, and it does it in a way that is invisible. Right? Yes, like not only is it doing an elegant job of telling the story, it is doing an elegant job of convincing you that it's not. That it's simply existing. Yes, that, 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 and that's it. it. It's simply existing, and that that is brilliant. If you can get away with that, and and nobody's applauding, going, "Oh, what a witty writer! Yeah. What a, how wonderful!" Then, then, although I did do that earlier, I said, "Oh, what great writing!" Yeah. But it's a good bit. But um, yeah, I, I, that is something I think every writer can strive for. Every actor as well. And you know, I was an actor before as a writer, and I'm still acting now. But uh, yeah, th- those are. Those are really things to strive for and to learn. That and this movie can teach you that at least. Yeah, for such a bleak film, I mean, a film that leaves you with almost nothing. Yeah, it's remarkable just how much it does do. I and maybe I keep I'm still trying to reconcile the whole. Well, how is this a popular film? How was this a success at the time? And it's well, when you say it was a success, you mean like it what, ran for years. Yeah, it, it didn't go away. And a time when I mean, films ran, but it was. The art house success, and I imagine it was the budget on it was nothing. Yeah, and to, of all of, of all the films that came out of the Australian New Wave, I think this and Mad Max were the two that really hung on. <laughs> and Mad Max was a completely yeah, different, yeah very different movie. Yeah, and actually now that I'm thinking about it, uh, Gallipoli was successful too. Yeah. Uh, about a year later. Yeah, but uh, the thing that I, I meant to say earlier, and I completely blew past it is that this other point Australia was in Vietnam as well there were Australian soldiers in Vietnam mm-hmm. which I always forget oh, uh, right. maybe that's part of it too Legacy well, the horrors ones. of war yeah because yeah, you just roll right out of the war which ended in 76 I think right was when they pulled out yeah you, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna guess on the number because I'll I'll look stupid yeah well I know, <laughs> uh, we got an angry email over um, my saying that Kong Skull Island takes place in 1973 at the end of the Vietnam War, which is established in the film that the Vietnam War is over in 1973 when the super appears on the screen. Yeah. And this person took exception and said, uh, well, the fall of Saigon wasn't until 1975, and really hostilities didn't cease until 1976. Okay, but the giant monkey in the movie isn't a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where I'm getting 1976. I love, I love those people who do that. Yeah. I think there's, it's so great that someone has... Like especially when it's a movie about a giant monkey that they've gone through. Wait a minute, like we gotta get some. Re- you gotta get some re- in touch with reality, there, yeah. Norm. Those guns it, didn't exist, exist in, that in, the, in that era. Yeah, yeah but uh, but the giant monkey's cool with you. Okay, yeah, it's good. Yeah. I I I think that the people who do that, like they are just fantastic. They're very special. They're very special. They're very special people. <laughs> and I, they keep me sending me emails. Do they say? Just wait until oh, just wait until. Uh, they see Cars 3. Oh, really? So many unanswered questions. So many unanswered questions in Cars 3. My thanks to Marvin Kaye, who can currently be seen stealing at least one scene in Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water in theaters now. You can also stream at least one season of his show, Less Than Kind, on the TMN Go app in Canada. You can find Marvin on Twitter at Marvin K, all one word, and keep an eye out for the next thing at facebook.com slash hitonmeseries. You can find Breaker Morant on Blu-ray and DVD in a fine restoration from the Criterion Collection. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like you're leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. 
Here's to 2018 being better than 2017 in every conceivable way. That'd be nice. I'm afraid you just too darn.